Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I'm here today with LT. Lara, what's going on? Tom, today we got a chance to talk with Dr. David Moon. He's an emeritus professor at the University of York. And it was really exciting to talk to him because I don't know if you're aware of the running joke on Star Trek where Chekhov always says, oh yeah, whiskey was invented by lethal, lethal old lady in Russia. But this time around, something actually was invented in Russia, uh, modern soil farming. How long have you had that Star Trek reference in your pocket? That was amazing. I've been sitting on it for hours. Does everybody know about this wheat but me? Well, not everyone, Captain. It's a Russian invention. Well, in this case, it's completely true. We talked about his most recent book, The American Step, and how American farmers and scientists communicated with their counterparts in Russia to figure out what to do in the Midwest. This was a fascinating conversation that led to new book orders. So without any further introduction, Dr. David Moon. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Moon, thank you very much for joining us today on The Slava Connection. I wanted to actually jump right into it. You had a book just come out called The American Steps, where you discuss this connection between Russia's steps and the Great Plains of the United States. But we hear that you actually have roots that are starting in Texas that kind of inspired this book. So could you kind of touch on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me. And it's great to be back in Austin, even if uh, virtually on Zoom. Can I start by very, very briefly summarizing the book to give a context, and then I'll, then I'll go back to my time in Austin. Please. So it's a transnational environmental history of two grasslands, so the Russian or Eurasian steppes, North American Great Plains. Both have similar environments, similar environmental histories, and I explore connections between them. Now, contrary to what some people might think of as a normal process or standard process of technology transfer, transfers of science from West to East, in this case, they go the other way around. So I look at how people, plants, both agricultural crops and weeds, agricultural sciences and techniques made their way from the Russian steppes to the North American Great Plains. The book covers the period from the 1870s uh, through the 1930s. So we have a case of Americans learning from Russian and Soviet experience. So this is the roots of Great Plains agriculture. Now, I think the roots of the book date back to the start of my career, the very end of the 1980s, when I had a wonderful opportunity to be a visiting professor at UT for a couple of years. I was replacing temporarily Professor Sheila Fitzpatrick, one of the most leading figures in right. Russian Soviet history, because she was on, um, she had a grant for research leave and then moved to the University of Chicago. So I spent a couple of years teaching courses in Russian history at UT. This was my first full-time academic position, so most of my time was spent preparing my teaching and grazing. But it was also my first time in the United States, so I always delight in telling people the first place I visited the United States was Austin, Texas. In the breaks and in the vacations, I took time to travel. So I traveled all over the United States. So the most important trip was in my second summer when I made a big road trip out through the desert southwest. So I drove out west, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, California, drove up Highway 1, all the way to Fort Ross, the Russian trading post. It took me about six weeks to get there, but I was quite tired and I drove all the way back to Austin in three and a half days. Wow. <laughs> 
my memories of the trip are places like the um, Ancestral Pueblo sites, then known as Anasazi sites, like Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde, obviously the Grand Canyon, Highway 1, California, Fort Ross. But to get out there, I had to drive through the hill country, cross West Texas to New Mexico, and then the same on the way back. On the way out there, I thought it was really boring, and I hit the gas pedal to get to New Mexico as fast as possible. And I'm sure I burned up lots of gas. On the way back, I appreciated subtleties in the landscape of West Texas. Obviously, I was comparing it with the much more dramatic scenery I'd seen further west, of Grand Canyon being the big example of Big Sur in California. But I realized there was something about West Texas that was more subtle. You had to appreciate it. And this, I think, set a little germ in my mind. I thought, oh, this is interesting. I knew there were parallels with the steps. So at that point, I'd never been. Throughout my time at UT, I was thinking it'd be interesting to do a future research project involving both the United States and Russia. At that time, I worked on peasants and serfdom. So an obvious project would be comparing Russian serfdom and American slavery. But Peter Colchin had just published a major book on that precise topic. But the germ of the idea was there. When I got back to the UK in the university vacations, I had a job taking groups of American students on trips to what was still the Soviet Union. I was familiar with what was still Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, Moscow, because I spent a year in Leningrad as a student a couple of years earlier. On one of the trips, we went down to Rostov-on-Don in the steppe region. We spent a few days there, and that was my first time in the steppes. So a little idea was beginning to develop in my mind. Both regions are flat grasslands, they're semi-arid, have recurring droughts, very few trees. They're windy because they're flat. Mm -hmm. Originally, the indigenous peoples live by herding or hunting animals. So the steppes were settled by Russian Slavic peasants who moved south and east from central Russia. They ploughed up the fertile soil, the Chernozyom of the steppe, grew grain, suffered from periodic droughts and crop failures, displaced the indigenous peoples, the steppe nomads. Slightly later, same thing happens in the Great Plains. And some of the migrants, we'll talk about this later, come from the Russian Empire. Now, at first, when I got back from UT, I became interested in migration. Then from migration, I became interested in the conditions the migrants found themselves in. If you move from central Russia to the steppes, or if you move from the east coast of the United States to Kansas or Texas, the conditions are different. You're going to have to adapt. Then I made a wholesale move into environmental history. Environmental historians analyze, consider how people have interacted with the environment they're part of over time. So it's a bit like geography, but done over time as well as in space. I wanted to work on a region in Russia. The university I worked at had an exchange with Rostov State University. So I was very happy to go back. And that's how I got into the steps. Mm -hmm. Many, many years later, the book, my book, The Plough That Broke the Steps, note the American influence title came out with Oxford University Press in 2013. While working on that, I was also thinking about the Great Plains. I was reading about the, uh, the history of the Great Plains, talking to American specialists thinking about it. I had a month-long fellowship in Washington, D.C., at the end of which I flew out to Kansas, had a look around, met with people. And eventually that led to the American Steps book, which came out last year uh, with Cambridge University Press. 
So that's how a couple of years at UT, traveling around, seeing these different regions, turned me from a historian of Russian peasants and serfdom into an environmental historian of the Great Plains with a Russian connection. There's quite a bit of rhyming in your career. We got Texas, Rostov, Rostov, Texas. And I spent the last two years as visiting professor in Kazakhstan, in the in the uh, in the Eurasian steppe there. How did the Kazakhstan steppe compare to West Texas? That seems to be a little bit different beast, right? But they look similar. The climate's a bit different. Northern Kazakhstan is similar to Saskatchewan in climate, mm-hmm. and it looks like it. So it's mu- obviously much colder, much more extreme. West Texas is pretty hot compared to most of the steppes. So in, in terms of the current book, you talk about the West copying Russian technology. How does that exchange happen? How are farmers in Ohio, how do they have any idea what's going on in you know the North Caucasus region? We're further west of Ohio. We're really from it's sort of Texas, mm-hmm. Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South North Dakota, and up into Canada a bit further west. So we're really um, west of the 98th parallel. Here, migrants are important, so hence the interest in migration. I was familiar with European migrants in the Great Plains region from my time in central Texas. I was familiar with the uh, new Brownfells. I always wanted to call mm-hmm. it Neubrownfells. <laughs> That's wrong. Fredericksburg. I would take visitors, I had visitors from England. I'd take them out to Fredericksburg in the Hill Country. And, of course, the text checks. So I was familiar with European migrants, relatively recent European migrants, late 19th century in the southern end of Great Plains. This is one of the big connections. From the 1870s, tens of thousands of farmers moved from the steppes of the Russian Empire to the Great Plains. Some of these, an important group, were most of them were Germanic. They're not Slavs. They're descendants of German Germanic peoples who responded to invitations from Catherine the Great at the end of the, the late 18th century to come to the Russian Empire to settle and they settled in the steppes, today's southern Ukraine, the Volga region. Some of these settlers were Mennonites. This is a, a pacifist Protestant sect. They moved around over the, uh, over the centuries to escape the risk of being conscripted into the army. That's why they leave Russia in the 1870s, mid-1870s, at the time of the military service reform. They moved to the Great Plains. They moved from uh, right up and down the Great Plains from Texas to Canada, but the largest numbers of them moved to Kansas and also Nebraska. So my story took me, while I was still thinking about Texas, I ended up in Kansas rather than Texas. And I spent probably more time in Kansas than most (laughs) people from Britain over the last few years researching their, their book and talking about it. What they brought with them, because they were farmers, they brought with them their farming techniques, they brought with them some of the crops they grew, they also brought their grinding stones with them. They were, they were relatively prosperous, and so they could afford to ship all this stuff across. They were quite canny farmers. They were familiar with the environmental conditions of the steppes. Most came from today's southern Ukraine, and they deliberately bought land from railroad companies in central southern Kansas, where the climate mm-hmm. was slightly better than where they'd come from. They knew what they were doing. But this meant that the techniques they brought with them, their experience, and the crops worked well in the new environment. So they had a head start on other settlers who come from the eastern United States who were in unfamiliar conditions. One of the main crops they brought with them was a type of hard red winter wheat called turkey mm-hmm. red wheat. 
in the Russian Empire is known as Krimka because it comes from the Black Sea, close uh, from the Crimean region. In the 1890s, there were droughts up and down the Great Plains. A US Department of Agriculture scientist called Mark Carlton he noticed that the crops the Mennonites were growing, that they brought with them from the Russian steppes, were doing well when the crops grown by other farmers from the eastern United States elsewhere were not doing well. So he worked with them, he tested their wheat they were growing. He saw, he looked at the techniques they were using to conserve the scarce moisture in the soil. He realized that the wheat varieties they were growing could cope with relatively low rainfall. And at this point, he persuaded the US Department of Agriculture, they'd all gone to the same colleges, to send him to the steppes to look for more types of wheat and more crops he could introduce. This was a great age of introducing crops, plants in different parts of the world. So they were moving plants all around the place. So many of the crops grown by farmers throughout the United States were imported from other parts of the world in this period. It's only a bit later they realized that this was actually quite dangerous. You're going to get invasive species, you're going to bring diseases, you're going to have to quarantine the plants. in the 1890s, no, you could ship all this stuff across. No one seemed to be aware of the problems. Carlton travelled all over the steppe region. He taught himself Russian. He was quite an adventurous character. He went from southern Ukraine. He travelled all around central northern Russia. He went out as far as northern Kazakhstan, today's northern Kazakhstan. He went to places where the conditions were more extreme because crops that could survive there could cope with any fluctuations that would get back in the United States. So he shipped loads of crop varieties back. He then promoted their use. He brought back a hard spring wheat called Durham wheat used to make pasta. He thought that would do well in Texas, but it turned out it did much better in the Dakotas. So there's a bit of guesswork involved here, but it did work. Most of the wheat in the Great Plains for the following decades was based on these imports from the Russian steppes. And even today with the genetically modified crops, some of the germoplasm comes from these imports from the late 19th, early 20th centuries. So that's the crops. There's lots more I could talk about. I'll spare you that. It's basically the same idea. <laughs> also, sciences. And this is one of the interesting things, because some branches of science make their way from Russia to the United States. When I talk to Russian uh, audiences about this, they're not surprised. When I talk to Western audiences, they sometimes have like a check, is this what we're doing learning from Russian scientists? The steppe region, the soil is very fertile. If you're going to make this work, you're going to have to understand how the soils are formed, how the soils function, so you can devise farming techniques that are sustainable. In the 1870s, the Russian government sponsored field work by Russian soil scientists led by a man named Vasily Dokuchayev. They travelled all around the steppes, analysed the soil. They did big cuttings and looked at how the soils had formed from the bottom up to the top soil. And they devised what is really now modern soil science. This is important. It's not just for the sake from a theoretical point of view. If you understand how soils form, then you can farm them in a way that they won't lose their fertility. Obviously, this doesn't happen, but at least if you've got mm -hmm. some idea, some, of them, some farmers will try and make sure they do this. So they were then developing sustainable ways of using the land, sustainable ways of farming, trying to replicate the natural environmental conditions. There was some resistance. This innovation, soil science, gradually spread around the scientists around the world. Americans were slow because the head of US government soil scientists was a man named Milton Whitney, 
and here we can boo and jeer boo. because he resisted it. He didn't like these innovations because it upset his survey. It upset his work. He was interested in what he did. He didn't want any one of his, um, his graduate students read up translations on the Russian soil science and he put it in his dissertation. So he, he had him moved. Uh, he ends up in a, an experiment station in Ohio. Whitney then hired a geologist from Missouri called Curtis Marbot. The idea was he would stop these dangerous ideas from Russia. <laughs> Marbot was very conscientious. Also, very sadly, his wife had just died. So while he was mourning his wife, uh, he was reading a book published in German by a Russian soil scientist, Konstantin Glinka, student of Dr. Chai, who had written in German so that people around the world could read it, because German was then one of the main languages of science. So Marbot is converted to this. He tests the Russian methods and techniques on field trips around the Great Plains. He wrote about these in letters to his daughter, which were a wonderful source for the book. And there's all sorts of anecdotes. And one, he describes how they built a platform on the back of the pickup truck so he can sit up on the platform and survey the landscape. Another one, he describes how his coat had blown away and he had to get a new top coat. <laughs> so he describes the experience of doing the field work. But what he realized was that the Russian soil science techniques and the theory worked and that the soils of the Great Plains were similar to the steppes. He then convinced the, the American government soil survey workers of this new technique, these new techniques, these new methodologies. They learned all the terminology using Russian terms. And by the 1920s and 30s, they're categorizing the soil of the Great Plains as Chenzyom, using the same word to describe a similar soil in the steppe region. They also, they, they told the U.S. Soil Survey, hired a couple of genuine Russian soil scientists who'd ended up as emigres in the United States. Uh, and they helped train the Americans in these new techniques. And this is still the basis of U.S. government soil science, the soil survey, and the soil survey manual, should you happen to read it. In the first paragraph, it says, this is where we got the, techno where we got the techniques and the science from, from Russian soil scientists and the name check, Dr. Chayev. One of the things I got out of the study was really close contact between scientists. I think it's like today, academics today, if you find people working in similar topics, similar areas, you're really interested, talk to each other, compare your approaches, your methodology, exchange publications. It helped that most Russian scientists knew Western European languages, whereas relatively few, well, few Americans knew Russian, which is why the Russian Jewish emigres are so important. I have a thousand questions. I'm just curious of like kind of the literature review aspect of this. You say you're originally going to set out to do slavery versus serfdom, but it had been done. How much work had been done on charting Russian farmers speaking with American farmers? I've never heard this story. I've heard almost no stories of strong transnational ties during the beginning of the Soviet Union. Was this work happening at all? There is work on this. There's a growing amount of work on transnational history and on connections between them. I think all the individual components of my story, people had worked on these before. I think no one had put it all together the way I've done. And also no one had done the, the depth of research, especially archival research from both sides. So I spent a lot of time working in archives in the United States, both the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, also Kansas City, archives up and down the Great Plains, and also archives uh, in Russia, central archives, some provincial archives, also in Ukraine, 
the last archival research I did was in Kazakhstan. So no one had done that depth of research from both sides. And knowing, knowing the relevant languages helped. It was also important to know German because German was the conduit mm -hmm. for some of the, uh, some of the exchanges and some of the migrants, of course, for Germans. I never managed to learn Mennonite, Plattdeutsch, or Plottdeutsch, as they call it. <laughs> I didn't have a full set, and also I don't know Yiddish, which would have been useful as well. <laughs> so I think what I did that hadn't been done before was a depth of research, taking a story from both sides, having the language skills, and also I explored the regions as well, talked to farmers, talked to scientists, visited shelter belts of trees, uh, met a farmer who had one on his land, I was just going to say, if, if you still want to learn Yiddish, you can always come back to University of Texas at Austin. I know we have a couple of courses available. I know, I remember. I remember it being taught there, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like Tom, and like fascinated by this because this is not a topic we get into very often. Again, had no idea that, I mean, in, in the midst of a lot of the research that Tom and I do, we find a lot of dissimilarities between Russia and the U.S. and a lot of points of separation. Yeah. And then to find that there's a field where there's actually interaction, there's actual exchange is very exciting. And I did want to actually touch a little bit more on the research that's going on today. You, you mentioned it's growing a little bit, that it's kind of more people are getting involved in this. Do you find that this work is also yeah. translating to, to other fields? Because there is this environmental study aspect, but there is, I, I feel, a lot of room for it to connect to other fields of study. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, there's a number of questions here. I'll, I'll try and unpack them answer the question in different parts. So I think we're transnational history. I think this is this is a growing field. So I think history, I felt it doesn't really work if we just look at national histories, because then you think your nation, your national history is somehow unique, as often it's not. Similar things are happening elsewhere. You need to put them together. So transnational history makes sense. For environmental history, you can really only do it at that sort of scale because the environment is global. When I do talks on this topic, I have photographs of the Great Plains, photographs of the steppes. And if I'm in one of the regions, I ask the audience to guess where they are. Normally, with a bit of help from me, they will get it wrong. So the environments are the same. <laughs> yeah, Americans are the, are the most, I'm afraid, are the most gullible audiences who can be tricked into getting it wrong. The ones who are at least gullible are the Kazakhs, because they will identify the species of grass <laughs> and tell you where it was photographed is taken. So transnational history, I think you have to do things at a transnational scope. Then you see similarities as well as differences. Environmental history, we're understanding how people have interacted and understood the environment over time. Then you have to do that at a global scale. Got a couple of examples of recent books, which are by Russian specialists who take a transnational and a Russian-American approach, so similar to mine. A book called Floating Coast by Bathsheba Demuth. It's made a big splash. It's won some major prizes. And what she does is she takes the Bering Straits region, both Alaska and Chukotka on the Siberian side, and she looks at the environment through the lives and the traditions and the cultures and the activities of the indigenous populations. And in reading the book, it's quite clever because you have to concentrate to remember where you are. This is done deliberately because they're similar. And both Russians and Americans are treated as outsiders. So that's a very good example of a transnational study. Another one that's just come out just a few weeks ago is a book on the permafrost, on permafrost science. And this is by an American historian called Pei Yi Chu, works at Pomona College in California. What she does is she analyzes how Russian Soviet scientists came to understand the continuously frozen subsoil of northern and eastern Siberia. So it's a similar story to the soil science one. 
you need to understand the permafrost if you're going to build roads or build houses on it or, can, or develop it economically. Otherwise, they'll just get swallowed up when, when the top layers, the permafrost melt and freeze again. The Russians did this first. They've got more of it. In the 1940s, I think it was, Americans wanted to understand the permafrost so they could promote Alaska. They were using it as an air bridge for land lease to the Soviet Union, so they borrowed the permafrost science. They mistranslated some of it. They misunderstood some of it. Permafrost is actually a mistranslation of an outdated Russian term. But this is another, it's a, it's another case of a science develops in Russia, is adopted by the Americans from the Russian science, and it's a similar environmental science. That's a couple of examples of transnational studies, and I think there's uh, more to come. I have to ask, what's the correct translation of permafrost? Uh, you'd have to ask Professor Chu. In Russian, it's a vietnam medoslavta, which has a really poetic ring to it. That is well <laughs> beyond my pay grade. Well, I think I think we have quite a few books that we need to add to our Slavic Connection book list. But you also actually have another book that just came out, a collection of essays called Place in Nature, Essays in Russian Environmental History. Uh, could you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I'd like to do that. So we were trying to take what tends to be called Russian environmental history, really Eurasian history, take it a bit further. Uh, for too long, the emphasis was on Soviet destruction of the environment, the loss of the Aral Sea, the Chernobyl explosion, how economic development was seen as much more important than preserving the environment. Obviously, all this was true, but it's also true in other parts of the world. So there's been too much emphasis, we felt, on ecocide, destruction of the environment. And what specialists in the field have been doing in recent years has been stepping back and taking a broader picture, having a more nuanced interpretation, understanding that environmental destruction is obviously a key part of the story, but it's not the only part. We were very fortunate to get a grant from the, the Levy Hume Trust, which is a British academic uh, charity that funds uh, what they like to see as original, perhaps slightly quirky research. And they funded a network. They don't use the word quirky in their blurb. They have a more scholarly term. They funded a network of scholars from six universities in the UK, US, and in Russia. And they funded a series of field trips, like mini conferences each summer. So we chose places in the environment that we could use to try to understand the environmental history. So we chose specific places that would serve as examples of different aspects of environmental history. So we went to the Solovetsky Islands in the White Sea, our colleagues in St. Petersburg organized that trip. We went to Lake Baikal in Siberia. We went to the northern Urals region, the Ekaterinburg, Pierre, and a whole range of places around there to understand the uh, industrial heritage of the region. And we also went to Chernobyl, but we published separately on Chernobyl, so it's not in the Place in Nature books. In the Place in Nature book, the essays in the book focus on specific places the ones we visited and others, members of our team had expertise on. We deliberately chose not to focus on Moscow, Central Russia, but Northern Russia, the North of European Russia, the Russian North, uh, Siberia, the Russian Far East. So you get quite a different perspective on Russia if you think about more outlying parts of, of Russia. We exhausted ourselves traveling around these places. I'd like, like to look back at it now, and for most of the last year I've been locked down at home and able to travel anywhere. Uh, we use most forms of transport with the exception of submarines and helicopters. We also didn't ride any horses. 
but we really explored these places. We got a sense of them. We swam in Lake Baikal. We got bitten by insects in all sorts of places. We rode boats on the Solovetsky Islands. So we got a real sort of firm set. We grounded ourselves in these environments. Uh, we met with local specialists, local people, talked to them, invited them to our seminars and workshops. So when we had seminars, it'd be our team and also local scientists, local specialists. So we got a big exchange of ideas, a bit like the scientists in my, in my American Steps book. So we did that in formal seminars, informal meetings over dinner, over a glass of vodka. So we learned a lot. We embedded ourselves in these places. So that was the idea behind the book. And it came out, well, just a few weeks ago. So we were delighted when the book came out. And thanks to our grant, it's quite lavishly illustrated uh, with, our, with mostly our own photographs to give us a sense of place. So our sense of place, this was to supplement more traditional research into textual sources, uh, visual sources. So we we're trying to give a more rounded picture, look, looking not just at debates over environmental destruction, but about the experience of an essays on the foundation of national parks, of uh, nature reserves, Zafaviedmiki in Lake Baikal, an essay on travel guidebooks on the, on the Trans-Siberian Railroad by a couple of Russian scholars, Alexander Bukasli and Katerina Kalamienova, about how the environment was conceptualised and presented through travel guides. So these are the sort of issues we explored in that book. You asked about future projects. I can also answer this question by giving a plug to the book we haven't finished yet. <laughs> we would love to hear about future projects as well, of course. Something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, we need a title for this one, but I'm working with uh, two members of our team. Yuli uh, Lives from the High School of Economics in St. Petersburg, Catherine Yevsikov from Columbia University, and we're putting together a volume of essays by mostly but not solely younger mid-career scholars doing what we think is uh, original path-breaking research in the field. It takes the story a bit, takes the research a bit further, links it to a broader studies of environmental history globally as you know, uh, important methodologies, innovative methodologies. So taking this moving in Russian environmental history forward. What we're also trying to do in this book is not just have a purely on environmental history, but essays that shed light on wider topics, urban history, the history of the political system, about how ideas about environmentalism can function in the Soviet political system, uh, cultural history, environmentalism, art and literature, economic development. So. We'll be returning our attention back to this book in the summer, but we've got some really exciting essays to look at. So look out for this book probably in a year or two's time. I think that was a great punctuation on the podcast. I think our reading lists have expanded dramatically over the past half hour. Have a lot, yeah, have a lot to get into this summer <laughs> as well for us. Where can I buy the American Steps? If you just Google Moon, American Steps, Cambridge, you'll find it. It should be in the um, Perry Castaneda Library, and if not, do place uh, multiple orders for it. <laughs> trying to figure out where to buy a book in 2021. I'm useless. I actually also, I had a quick question before we let you go, Dr. Moon, because I'm deeply envious of your opportunity to go just travel all over Russia, especially like away from Moscow and just all yeah. over the place. Do you have yeah. a favorite memory or something that you encountered that was really memorable <laughs> to you? Just so I could imagine it in my mind. I've been in my apartment for over a year so i think there's so many but we could do a book on things that went wrong on the trip and i think our favorite one we managed to get a photo of it in the book is we, we, we had to chart our own boats on baikal and we sailed across 
by car. We were getting off the boat. So we, we stayed overnight and then these um, Uaz, old Soviet four-wheel drive vehicles came to pick us up from the beach. But the driver, one of them, had forgotten to engage the four-wheel drive. No. So what happens if you drive onto sand uh, without the four-wheel drive engaged? Of course, you got buried in mm-hmm. the sand. And we had to dig him out. And we had to build a road. So we built a road out of bits of rock. There were people camped on the beach next to us. We borrowed their firewood <laughs> to build our road. <laughs> and we had a Soviet scientist, uh, Arkady Kalikman, and he took charge of this. We got photographs of us building the road and <laughs> pushing the four-wheel drive out of the sand. Oh, that's fantastic. That was one of many highlights and too many things. That was good because we got a real sense of the environment. That's one way to learn getting stuck on the beach. <laughs> Team building exercise. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This was great, and I really look forward to uh, what comes next. Very true. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. It was great talking to you. That was Dr. David Moon. You can find his new book, The American Step, wherever people find books these days. You can also find his earlier book, The Plow That Broke the Steps, Agriculture and Environment on Russia's Grasslands. Lara, you got anything else? Uh, I think I have a lot of books to read coming up, so I'm going to be really busy learning about agriculture. Not a field I usually cover in my uh, typical political science research, so I'm excited to kind of bolster that part of my knowledge. And I have to watch some Star Trek now so I can get your references. All right, we have our homework, so let's go do it, I guess. So invention. Later. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to give a a shout out to the roofer, to Steve Bagnell Roofing. Uh, Your roofing solutions are us. I think I was on the side of his van. There was, it's been quite windy, and so a tile seems to have fallen through the roof, and there was a bit of a hole in it. So it was a bit alarming, but he came around in half an hour. <laughs> Steve offered me a job as well, so I start on Monday. <laughs> it's not uh, typical Texas.